Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. John MacArthur, in his book, Reckless Faith, says, Federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing. Then, when they see the bogus money, they recognize it. Now, how true is that? And what's behind the note itself? Well, how about this? What's behind the story of counterfeit money altogether? Well, stick with us as we take a moment in this new year to, pun intended, Look more closely at the history of the counterfeit and hopefully have a great time while we do it. Pour yourself a cup of coffee, keep focused on the road if you're driving, and Happy New Year, everyone. It's another episode of The Missing Chapter. Welcome back to the Missing Chapter Podcast. You are here with Phil Horner and Phil Schaff. Phil and I are sitting down to Utica Coffee Roasting Company's Adirondack Coffee, oh, one of great. our favorites. Love it. And, um, you know, before we get into today's episode, Phil, it's December 30th. We're kind of reflecting on, you know, where we're headed, you know, in the school year and as a podcast. But really, we have so much to talk about with our listeners about uh, really the last couple of weeks. You know, you and I were fortunate enough to go to Nashville, Tennessee. We did a presentation with a coworker and, and a really, really good friend of ours, Justice Parker, at the National Council for the Social Studies Annual Conference. Yep. Um, and like I said, this year it was in Nashville. We met tons of great people. It was amazing. Yeah, for for our Tennessee listeners, Nashville is, is really what people hype it up to be. Yeah, for sure. Fantastic city. Very Southern laid hospitality. Back. Southern hospitality. You know. Everyone was nice. It just has a great vibe to it. We had a great time, had lots of good food. Food was amazing. But like I said, the conference itself, you know, which we presented on uh, Find Your Voice, educational podcasts uh, that, that empower and unite was our, our hour-long session. But the people that you meet and the experiences that you have at a conference like that, boy, they really re-energize you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just having having a group of people that are like-minded, I think the, the total on the app that we saw was around 3,500 to 5,000 people at this yeah. convention hall. It and felt like it. There were a lot of people. There was a ton of people, yeah. but the, the convention center is so huge mm-hmm. that it didn't feel like you were, you were you know, shoulder to shoulder. But in, in the same sense, a little intimidating as we're going into an hour-long session with, with that many people, not knowing how many people are going to show up and if they're going to be interactive. And uh, one of the highlights for us, at least, uh, we were in this, this huge exhibit hall. And uh, we see a, a poster board presentation. We go over and we see Hudson Valley. We're like, hey, listen, this is great. Yeah, Hope, maybe local. it's upstate New York, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we go over there. We're, we're about to talk to these uh, these uh, these ladies that were, that were giving these presentations. And we have someone come over and they say, hey, wait, wait, wait. They saw our badges. Phil and Phil. He's like, wait, Phil and Phil, are you are you guys part of the missing chapter? And it was our friend yeah. uh, Nick Petricioni. I'm hopefully hopefully Nick. Please contact us and correct us if we're saying your name wrong. We we don't want to do that. But uh, yeah, he said, "Hey, listen, I'm uh, I'm an avid listener. I, I recognized you by your voices." Yeah. That was one of the highlights of the entire week. And what it was, was great. crazy, Phil, is that here we are in Nashville, and Nick teaches 45 minutes away from us I know. in Delmar, New York, in Bethlehem uh, Central High School, 
So it was a local guy. Yeah. But it yeah. was a really a surreal moment. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of those moments where we just were able to, to talk and just converse with just great people from yeah. around the country. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, as, as educators or people in any field, really, you know, that it's so rewarding. Yeah, for sure. So rewarding. Um, now, yeah. yeah, he was just, you know, he was an administrator, I think, right? Did he, did yeah. He, yeah. And then he, uh, we also had some people. We met a professor from Dallas, Texas. She was she was amazing. But everybody in that conference, whether it was people that we we were talking with in our own presentation or elsewhere, it, it was just so encouraging. And, and what you've just heard, too, right before we came on air was uh, the group of people that we were right. presenting to. So we, we asked them to be on part of the podcast. Uh, we were trying to show them how easy this is to, to you know, to record and, and do your thing. And sure enough, we recorded everybody. So now they are listened to in 75 different countries around the world. Right. Easy, rewarding, and gives you, our listeners, access to hopefully stories that you didn't know yep. and stories that you enjoy. And that's our segue, Phil, into today's episode. Sure is. Now, before we start, too, I also wanted to give a nice shout out to... Uh, my cousin Lauren, she she texted me a few weeks ago and said, "Hey, listen, uh, we just stumbled upon your podcast, and uh, it was one of those things where where it was just, you know, you get that random text, and mm-hmm. it was just a nice validation, especially coming from Lauren, who we, we ultimately, you know, we we totally respect her and, and love her. So, Lauren, thank you for listening, and as well as your son Tucker, cutest boy on earth. So, thank <laughs> you, Tucker and Lauren, for for listening to our podcast, and hopefully, you convince Matt to start listening to her husband. All right, so today." It was kind of a it was an interesting mix of stories here. So we're we're coming up on obviously the new year, um, and, and there were some major January events that I was anticipating maybe doing multiple episodes on, mm-hmm. and then I just found this weird opportunity to combine all of those stories into one. So let's let's talk January first, eighteen sixty three. So as the nation approached its third year of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Okay, this declared that, of course, all people being held as slaves within rebellious American states were now free. Now, if we fast forward a little bit, January 1st, 2002, the euro first entered circulation with euro banknotes and coins being introduced in 12 different countries. So it's the world's largest monetary changeover ever. And some of the currencies replaced by the euro included the um, Austrian shilling, the, the French franc, the Greek drachma and Italian lira. Now, w- the way I started reading this, and I, I, my brain started going in all different directions, and I th- hopefully I, I, I think you can, can see where these two stories are merging. I realized that there was a counterfeit campaign that began after that introduction of the euro. Remember, January 1st, we're, we're talking January 1st, we're talking money. We also have an Abraham Lincoln connection. And hopefully you can see all that that come together. So how about we merge the two stories in a very odd, obscure fashion, very typical for the missing chapter, to fit the mission. So let's talk this idea of Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War, the idea of currency. All right, so I'm looking right at the crime, from the crime museum, excuse me. Let's talk about this guy by the name of Samuel Curtis Upham. And I hope I pronounce his name right because I've seen a few different pronunciations. But uh, he was born in February 1819 in Vermont. He joined the Navy, moved to California to search for gold, like many people did, but wrote a book about his adventures. All right, so his solid reputation and proud religious background earned him the nickname Honest Sam Upham. Okay. Okay. By the mid-1850s, he had settled in Philly. He, he was married, became a father, opened a small store that sold, that sold stationery, perfumes, medicines, cosmetics, newspapers, toiletries, you know, all sorts of supplies. 
So when he ran the store during the Civil War, you know, the Civil War erupts while he's opening this up in America. So he soon saw an opportunity to make money and cause serious trouble for the Confederacy. Okay. And in February 1862, Upham was surprised and puzzled by the extraordinary number of customers who came to his shop to buy copies of the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper. And he's thinking, whoa, why would, why would so many people do that? A customer drew his attention to the front page as to why they were buying so many newspapers. And it featured a copy of a $5 Confederate bill. Mm. And everyone was, was curious to see what Confederate money looked like. So Sam's plan began in 1862 following a commemoration of George Washington's birthday. The Philadelphia Inquirer had printed a lot of stories about the celebration as well, an, as well as an article that discussed how a representative from the paper had obtained an electroplate that could reproduce an almost perfect replica of a Confederate $5 bill. Which in and of itself is amazing that someone's doing this on their own scale. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, at this point in history, because I, yes. I always think of like, you know, anything counterfeited, like how really, how good is it? You know what I mean? How, how authentic right. is it? Because you know with the touch, the look of money, you can, you can tell. You can tell when something's off. You're on to something right there. So think, so keep that in the back of your mind. Okay. Because after reading the article, Sam really realizes that, hey, there's a, there's a business opportunity here. So he visits the office of the Inquirer and convinced the employees to sell him that exact electroplate, mm. which, once again, is, it blows my mind that they were able to do that. He used it to print, ready, 3,000 copies of the fake $5 bills, which he sold from his shop as a novelty item. So every bill he printed sold, I mean, off the shelves quickly. And Sam uh, decided his next purchase was, would, would be a Confederate $10 bill. Okay. He printed them on paper. It was very similar to the actual Confederate States currency. In fact, the only noticeable difference, which is hilarious to me, between his bills and the real thing was a very small caption at the very, the very bottom of the, of the Confederate bill that said... Um, a facsimile Confederate note. All right, now here's where the story gets very interesting. He puts this note at the very, very bottom. It's not in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's not a watermark like you would imagine. Okay. So whether by accident or design, he puts it along the very edge, the very bottom edge, and in small print. Which, if you think about this, what could someone easily do to that Confederate fa- uh, fake money? Could cut off the bottom. I, I was just going to say, you, you could just cut off the bottom. Follow the line with He's some shears. He's making it easy for him, right? Making it very easily. So yes. make, make it very easy for these people to to actually have, essentially, a real counterfeit. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So since the technology-poor Confederacy used scissors and shears to cut apart sheets of their genuine bills, and up them facsimile here, he, he's thinking, oh, this is... Pretty easy. I'll just right. put this at the bottom. But other people are thinking, hey, this is great because now I can just cut this off. It'll look just like the real thing. And because of that, Sam's counterfeit cash made its way into the actual Confederate economy. That's amazing. Okay. So you said something about the feel, the touch. And I think if you go back, to, especially during that time period, there's not many variations of, of currency. You know, do they use a, a, a typical paper? I would assume so. The printers obviously are not going to be like the, the state-of-the-art printers that we have here today. Um, especially around the world, everyone has their own, we're going to talk about that too, maybe a little bit after the break, their own um, 
I don't know if you could say their own touch, their own feel, their own see-throughs. There are all right, sorts right. of ways to, to, to capture a counterfeit. And something you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Phil, is that people were anxious to see what the Confederate money looked like. So yes. they, they were not familiar with it. So if Correct. it felt different and if, if it looked different, this was new. Right. And, and as people, you know, were exposed to it in one city— Hundreds and you know miles away when the when the Confederate you know currency reached that city, they were becoming familiar yes. with it. So there was nothing to compare it to. Yes, and if you've ever seen those movies where they're laundering money and they right. put the money in, in fake money into you know dryers with no heat and they mm-hmm. just start and it gets wrinkled. And yeah. So as soon as as soon as his um, notoriety for these notes became more and more popular all across the country, he began to print more and more. And more fake money goes into circulation. His production value, ready for this, rose to the point where his bills were virtually indistinguishable from the real thing. And he was loving it because, remember, he's making tons of money off of this. So I I guess the question for some of our listeners thinking right now, is he doing this on purpose to try to take down the Confederate economy? Or is he just a businessman trying to make a buck? (laughs) Pun intended. Uh, So here's, here's where he's at. He's loving it. He's making a ton of money. He's getting bulk orders for these. But the catch is, I think, that maybe he didn't, I don't know, that, that all these bulk orders were, do you think he really knew that these were, <laughs> were they going to people's scrapbooks? Were these, right. Or were they actually, you know, I think there was a, a light bulb moment where he, he was mm-hmm. like, okay, wait a second. I don't think all of these people that are buying these in bulk are using these for scrapbooks and, and, and memorabilia. So... And what's interesting, Phil, I I didn't mean to to interrupt you. What's interesting is it doesn't really matter what his motive is. The more that gets bought, the more it really is undermining the economy of the Confederacy. So whether or not that's what he started out to do, as it became more and more popular, that essentially had to be what was happening. That's true. That's a good point. Whether indirectly or indirectly, you know what I mean? Yeah, Yeah, and I didn't even think of that. And you know what what I'm about to tell you, too, I'm not trying to convince the listener one way or the other, but I think what some might say... You know, he's just an innocent businessman, but I think what he did next might prove otherwise. Okay, here we go. First, he ran ads in newspapers all over the North, offering to sell his, quote, perfect facsimiles by mail order to anyone who wanted to buy them. His ad boasted that, quote, the engraving is fully equal to that of the originals. Mm -hmm. Upham also offered to pay in gold for genuine samples of other denominations of Confederate money and postage stamps so that he could reproduce those also. So an enterprising... Uh, northern entrepreneur could purchase Upham bills of up to $100 face value for five cents. Wow. Uh, and a replica Confederate postage, a Confederate postage, excuse me, postage stamp for three cents. So it's much cheaper to buy the fake, obviously. Right. 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 You can and make if a no ton one of money knows the it. difference. Right. Why, why yeah. buy the, the real thing? So in May of, of 1862, Sam was able to boast in circular in a, in a magazine here. Upwards of 80,000 of the notes, shin plasters as they called them, and postage stamps have been sold during the past four weeks, and the cry is for more, mm. end quote. So by the end of May, he put out another claim saying that 500,000 were sold in the past three months. And hilarious, this is so funny. The ad also warned potential purchasers in big, bold letters, beware of base imitations. Wow. To the point where, so he's making a counterfeit, yeah. and he's, he's making people aware that there's counterfeits of this counterfeit. So he was, it's just, it's, it's he mind-boggling. He's a good businessman. He's I mean, a good businessman. This is somebody who, is, who definitely, you know, 
found his his calling. Oh, for <laughs> so sure. To speak. Yeah. yeah. So by the summer of 1862, uh, his bills were turning up in large numbers in, in northern Virginia. And as Union armies moved south into areas previously held by the Confederates, many of these soldiers came well-equipped with Confederate, I'll put these in air quotes for those who can't see me, money, which uh, they freely used to make purchases from the civilian population. Hmm. So the money became so well-known that the Confederate Congress even declared counterfeiting to be a crime that was punishable by death. So now you got to be thinking, as he as he warned, there's going to be copycat counterfeiters because of mm-hmm. him. So while it would have been illegal for Upham to counterfeit another nation's banknotes, how about this catch? The Union never recognized the Confederate States of America. So Upham's money couldn't legally be considered counterfeit, and I think that's one workaround. So one historian, I think this is amazing too, has estimated that Upham was responsible for between 1% and 2.5% of all Confederate currency in circulation while he was actively copying bills. Himself would later estimate that he had made and sold $15 million in phonies. At this point in history. I mean, we we talk about that with all of our, our podcasts that, you know, translating what is what a certain amount of money is worth at certain points in history based on inflation and, and yeah. things like that. At any point in history, that's a ton of money. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. And by 1863, inflation in the South was rampant. Its finances were so out of whack that no one could accept Confederate notes, real or fake by that point. The cotton traders would only allow payment in gold or union greenbacks. Mm. And he'd been so successful that he actually put himself out of business. In the wake of the war, Upham boasted that a Southern senator had told the Confederate Congress that his efforts had, quote, done more to injure the Confederate cause than General McClellan and his army. Wow. Pretty amazing. And he did it pretty much silently, right? And he went back to selling stationary cosmetics, including Upham's hair dye, which would, he would consider best in the world. Um, but he eventually died of stomach cancer in 1885. But and- wait, when all, all was said and done, he went back to just being a... Yeah, like because a small-time merchant, right? He went back to being a small-time merchant because he just he 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 ran out of things to sell. People caught on. Yeah, it it ran himself out of business. He was so successful, he ran himself out of business. And now his counterfeits are actually very rare, and they're collected as souvenirs. Mm. So the the question is, can you know the real from the fake? And I think one of the things that we'll talk about after the break is how we tie it all together. We started with Abraham Lincoln. How do we end with Abraham Lincoln? How do we talk about counterfeits, merge all these things together? We'll talk about that more after this short break. Okay, thanks for joining us here at the Missing Chapter Podcast. We're back from the break. Phil, our mission statement a little over three years ago, history is essentially made up of great stories, and that's what we're going to use to hook students and hook other listeners to get them more involved and, and sure. enjoy history more. And I, I take a look at the, the story you have today, and there's two things. There's going to be a twist, yep. which good, good stories tend to have. And there tend to be multiple directions that a story goes in yes. that at the end you don't necessarily see coming, but they all come to one central theme. So I think I'm going to set you up real nice for you your did. closing here. Yeah. I, just to be fully transparent, we did not talk about right. how you're going to set me up and toss me the ball for go. a home run, but here we are. Um, Abraham Lincoln, let's, let's go back to the original. First sentence of, our, of this story was, was merging those two together. So Abraham Lincoln, uh, Lincoln excuse me, signed the bill creating the Secret Service on April 14, 1865. So let's talk about that and what the significance of that is. Number one, the irony of that whole thing. 
He signed the bill creating the Secret Service. And if you recognize any historians that are listening, April 14th, 1865, that's the day he was assassinated. So he signed the bill for the Secret Service, which eventually and inevitably will, will protect future presidents from assassination the day he was assassinated. So I think that written in and of itself could be a missing chapter that's podcast a, That's episode. a footnote to a missing chapter podcast <laughs> yes. right there that yes. you know, hopefully people take away is like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Now, why do I bring that up now? Right. We're not talking about assassinations. It's because the very primary mission of the Secret Service was not in fact protection of the president, but was protection of currency and counterfeiting. So he signed the bill now, the, the more I research this, and maybe I could take uh, a few more minutes and research more, but I couldn't find maybe the reasoning behind this. I honestly think that word got out, though, mm-hmm. that Upham's currency had such a drastic impact on the Confederate uh, uh, charge that I think he was aware and right. he was told, hey, listen, there are these counterfeiters that are making a real dent in, in the economy, and, mm-hmm. and who's to say this wouldn't happen to their union greenbacks? Right. So... I wanted to mention that because the Secret Service wasn't assigned to protect the president until after 1901 with the assassination of President uh, William McKinley. But some Secret Service agents, which I think will we'll collectivize all this, had protected the presidency previously on occasion, but the agency was not charged specifically with presidential um, protection. So prior to 1901, there was no policy as to who protected the president. And presidents and those around them would just grab you know, whatever law enforcement agent was was close at hand, and they would be the one protecting the president. But it's all about counterfeiting. So I think if we look at, at you know, current currency, mm-hmm. how, do we, how do we protect ourselves from counterfeiting? And I think there were some really interesting ways uh, you actually mentioned before the break. We'll talk about Canada. Canada has a very um, common theme throughout their, their country, and it's, and it's touch, tilt, look at, look through. How do you spot the counterfeit? And, I, and we mentioned in the intro that the way you spot a counterfeit is by studying the real thing. So the first step is to touch the bill. Currency is printed on unique cotton-based paper in, in Canada. A false bill will often feel false. It almost has a, a waxy feel to it. Um, it just feels wrong. A common person may not be able to describe it. just doesn't feel right. Two areas on the bill where there's raised print according to Canada's um, officials. Having touched the bill, Canadian authorities described the the tilt features. When the bill is tilted, there's a holograph that will show all the colors of the rainbow. If there's a color missing, counterfeit. Um, Each tiny maple leaf on the bill is color split, so it appears two colors simultaneously. When it's studied closely, tiny numbers identifying the denomination of the bill appear in the background of the stripe. Third step is to look through the money. Uh, there's a small ghost-like watermark in the, in the bill's main portrait. And then you look through. There's gold thread woven through the bill that appears solid when held up. And then you look at those look-at features include fine line printing and all those different things. As with American money, very similar. And this website is amazing. You get to go on to uscurrency.gov and you get to train yourself in finding the counterfeit. It's fascinating. Now, Phil, all of that is well and good, but... I think what it comes down to is a very basic idea that the person collecting this, when you're making this, you know, purchase, still has to take the time to look for all. Yes. That. So if yes. someone's rushed, if someone's looking at, you know, we talk about, you know, with maybe like a large bill today, fifty, a 50 or one hundred, yeah. they're going to take the time to do that. I get yep. that. But when you were talking five dollars, ten dollar, there's they people are people don't. I don't think I've ever seen anyone look to see if the five dollar bill I've handed them at a gas station. It's a great call. 
is actual or not. It's yeah. like if you're if you're someone who's you know going to do this, the smaller denominations are probably the way to go. It's true. Yeah, and if you've ever gone to a bank and, and gotten cash out and they yeah. give you a new bill, it feels different right. than what's in your wallet. I just had this you know? the other day. I got I got a five dollar bill and I looked at it. I was like, boy, this looks so much brighter. Yeah, yeah. Because it must have been new that it looked it looked strange to me. Well, in the American economy, the American money, the saying goes, and if you follow uscurrency.gov and go through all this, it, they say feel feel tilt check with light check with UV. Mm-hmm. So. It's it's amazing to look at all of that uh, collectively and think we're talking almost 150 years ago. You look at the splash that Sam Upham's business venture created from doing business to eventually being a silent killer to the Confederate cause to being one of the motivators creating the Secret Service. His impact on our society, even today, goes back to that that feel of the currency. His his venture and his business model and everything that he's the ripple effect from Sam Upham can still be felt today. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, I'm Phil Horander, and I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.